Are you ready to challenge rhetoric? Today is Wednesday, October 5th. Tonight's show is the first show of year number three for Challenging the Rhetoric. This past Saturday marked two years that Challenging the Rhetoric has been on the air. So I thank all of you for all of the support that you've given me along the way. It's much appreciated. Tonight's guest is an expert on right-wing sovereign citizen and patriot movements. Spencer Sunshine is an associate fellow at Political Research Associates. He is also the lead author of the newly released report, Up in Arms, A Guide to Oregon's Patriot Movement. We are now midway through the fourth week of the first Oregon standoff trial. Yesterday, armed occupation leader Amon Bundy finally took the stand after multiple delays and many, many announcements and a lot of hand-raising and drama. I don't know if Ammon was playing hard to get, he was liking the drama of kind of showing up late for the ball or or what, or if maybe it's his attorney, maybe Mumford really is unprepared, uh, you know, at every turn, unprepared. Or it could be that Mumford, too, is liking keeping the attention on himself and his star client there. He himself seems to have quite the flair for the dramatic. According to reports from reporters that are in the courtroom, he's waving his hands in the air, exasperated. Whenever the judge shuts him down or when he raises items, he already knows they're off limits in this case. Emma took the stand again today after Mumford was 20 minutes late for court this morning, by the way. More money and attention has been put into Ammon's defense than any of the other defendants in the case, including those of his own brothers. So far, on the stand, Ammon, has, uh, he's talked about his childhood. He's talked about Bunkerville. He's talked about the BLM, his religion, the Hammonds, of course, and a few other things. But he hasn't really yet talked deeply into the actual day-to-day goings-on at the refuge, which are in part of what, um, you know, the illegalities that came, that came to be in this quote-unquote conspiracy that they're charged with, that he and others are charged with. So we also have heard a lot of excuses, especially for the presence of guns. Ammon said that the guns were there so that they would be taken serious, you know, and be respected uh, more so than versus just immediately be arrested, which is him essentially kind of confessing to conspiring to intimidate, right? If you are saying that you brought guns so that you're taken serious and, and your, your opinion or whatever you're saying is more respected than you know, that's that's an intimidation. And that's what the, the, the charge to impede is is pretty much all about. Prosecutors said that when they get their turn, which will be tomorrow uh, or hopefully tomorrow, that Ammon will be back again on the stand tomorrow. And then the prosecutors will have the cross-examination, which they have been saying should only take about 30 minutes. Is that a good sign? Is that a bad sign? I'm not really sure. Um, I guess we'll, we'll find out tomorrow, hopefully. According to a report by Maxine Bernstein for the Oregonian, during a brief break, Ammon Bundy's lawyer, uh, Mumford, he held a a mini tantrum, uh, Maxine wrote, claiming that there were grounds for a mistrial, accusing Judge Brown of preventing him from offering key information. Bernstein wrote that he was red in the face and he was fuming while he was pacing and pointing at the judge. And then Judge Brown told him to calm down, telling him not to shout at her. She said she couldn't hear his legal argument if he kept threatening her. Ammon is, uh, like I said, he's set to be testifying again tomorrow, but after he left the stand today, uh, Nevada Assemblywoman Michelle Fiore and a couple, and at least one other person took the stand, and 
Michelle Fiore, when she left, it was reported that she actually mouthed thank you to the jury. And I don't know how appropriate that really is. Uh, I guess I guess we'll see. But there was also some talk today that we might be hearing um, from a witness who is potentially, allegedly, a female confidential informant that was at the refuge. I'm not going to go much further into that, except that it was put on social media that she was going to be testifying today and told to me directly that she was quote unquote on had taken the stand um that has not yet happened we'll see what happens with that and we'll probably talk more about that next week if not sooner you know this all really kind of continues to be uh and sound kind of kind of like a soap opera i was going to play a clip to that but it, it wasn't playing when i was doing sound before the show so uh we're missing a little you know fun hoopla i was going to toss in but anyways anyway here here we go before we go much further this is all the stuff that you need to know so that you can participate with me tonight and with the guests and we like that in the chat room the chat room is live by the way during each live broadcast you can interact on the facebook page at facebook.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric dot news i'm on twitter at ctr news feed tonight's we're using the hashtag ctr oregon standoff in arms all of the stories i cover are available on the ctr website at challenging the rhetoric dot news and you can chat in the listener chat room during the show like i mentioned you can find that at blog talk radio dot com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with sherry roberts uh that's spelled c-h-e-r-i and if you click on show number 45 you know if you have to go to the website and like seek it out through your list it's show number 45 the chat room is right there beneath the slider and if you're already on that page and you don't see the chat room then go ahead and um hit refresh and scroll back down. So remember, this is a dialogue. It's not a, a debate. There's no personal attacks. There's not going to be any trolling going on in the chat room. Uh, you know, I will boot you out. No problem because I, you know, I pay for airtime to have these conversations with the guests or whatever it is that I want to bring to the table for you, not to spend all my time and, and the girls that do some social media work for me, spend all their time managing trolls. I would rather have the dialogue between everybody and all opinions. And as always, you know, if you're listening to an archive, there's no chat. Um, the guest tonight, I, I just want to kind of bring him on. Like I told you, uh, he just published an extensive report on Oregon's pa Patriot Movement called Up in Arms. Spencer Sunshine is an associate fellow with Political Research Associates. It's a Boston-based progressive think tank that monitors right-wing organizing. I'm really happy to have him along for the ride tonight. Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's awesome to have you finally. We've been this a long time in the works or in the making or yeah, whatever they say. There's been a long, a long back and forth about this. So I'm really happy that uh, I, had the I had the opportunity to be on your show. Well, thank you. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your, your background? Who is Spencer Sunshine? I'm a fellow at a think tank called Political Research Associates. We're a progressive think tank. We write about um, various kinds of right-wing organizing, say, from the right-wing of the Republican Party uh, uh, through the neo-Nazi movement, um, so things to, to, the, to the right of, of the, the center-right. Um, I uh, have spent a long time monitoring uh, fascist and white supremacist groups, but recently um, spent the last year looking at the patriot movement in Oregon, um, and we just produced, uh, uh, my think tank, PRA, in conjunction with the Rural Organizing Project, just produced an almost 200-page report uh, about the Oregon Patriot Movement called Up in Arms, A Guide to Oregon's Patriot Movement, which is available online now. Yeah, I've been sharing the links, and I have to tell you, I have not been able to completely finish it yet. I'm about two-thirds of the way in, 
And even for me, somebody who is pretty well versed in, in not everything, but in many of the different aspects of what we'll be talking about tonight, as I'm reading it, it's very educational to me and it fills in a lot of different holes and kind of expands on some things that maybe I wasn't too sure about or maybe just super well versed in. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And if you're listening tonight, I don't care what side of anything you're on. It's, it's well worth the read. And uh, I, I highly recommend it. And I'll, I'll share the links again uh, throughout the show, by the way. So, okay, so, you know, there's a, there's a picture on your website, and we talked about it. And I, I want to say it's Lace, the town of Lace, um, within Craig yeah. Cobb. There's the house in the lease. And the, yeah, there's the house in the background. Go ahead. No, no, I'm. No, please go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, um, you know, the, obviously you were there uh, at some point because there's a picture of you there. Um, I think when we talked, you said you spoke with some people, you know, around there. Did they? I, I'm sure they're all pretty tired of what had happened and all of that. But there are still people that were part of Craig Cobb's uh, conspiracy, basically, that still own homes and land or at least land there. Is that not correct? Yeah, Leith is the town that uh, neo-Nazi Craig Cobb uh, tried to take over in North Dakota. It's an amazingly remote, little, tiny little town. We drove through, I, was, I went there with my partner last summer, and we drove through um, just like hours of just like really desolate nothing to get there. And then it's almost like a ghost town. It's set off the road. You have to turn off, the, drive down a, a um, you know, a, an unpaved road for a couple miles, and then there's a sign that's now an iconic sign that says "Welcome to Lease," and it's this gorgeous, you know, like one block business downtown. So it's set way off the highway and everything, and then it's a, a beautiful, almost like a, 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 it's almost like a movie set because there's a tiny little one block downtown with like eight buildings, and only one of them is open as a business, and then there's uh, all the residences directly around it. So everybody's right there in this. It's very remote, but there's a real community right there. And um, I think like a dozen families still live there, but most of the buildings are empty. And so this neo-Nazi tried to buy up and did start buying up all these empty properties. It was at the, the height of the, the Bakken oil boom, so there was work that people could drive to, you know, and get really high-paying jobs there, and he tried to take the town over. Um, the town eventually uh, got rid of him by hook or by crook, uh, but he gave all these properties to other Nazis, and so Nazis still own all of these empty properties in this this tiny, far-flung town. So we did go there. Um, there was a movie made about it called Welcome to Lease that is excellent, and I recommend it. Um, the people are are friendly, but 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 shell shocked. Um, we went there and we we walked around and and talked to folks. Um, there's I think a lot of parallel with Burns. I was in Burns too during the occupation. Um, and it was a similar thing in which people tried to take the town over, um, at least obviously, you know, with uh, 25 people is much smaller than Burns, which is something like 1,500. Um, and it has many more businesses because it's sort of on a route. And, and so there's commercial businesses for people stopping through on the highway. Um, but, you know, aside from the occupation of the Mahia Refuge, like all these uh, paramilitary and sovereign citizen activists flooded the town and, you know, were very intimidating at the time. And we're, you know, we didn't want to go to restaurants and bars and, and be around them. And then they started running candidates and trying to take the, look like they were trying to take the county government over, although they were, they were beaten Spencer? down. 
Spencer, can, can, can we pause at that for a moment? Because that, that kind of correlates with something in court today. Um, you know, in the, in the, in the Oregon standoff trial that of the, of the first six, it was seven until Santilli's charges were dropped here in Oregon, but the, the first six that are on trial, there's, there's another trial, uh, for the Oregon standoff of other co-defendants that is set to start on Valentine's day, 2017. But today in, in court, Amon Bundy was questions uh, about, you know, the guns that were at, at Malheur as part of this occupation and, mm-hmm. you know, the purpose of them. And Bundy had basically had said that um, it was, and, and this had been said before, Ryan Bundy, his brother had said it, it was reported in the media and I think maybe even Lavoy, but there were certainly others, but that the guns were so that they would be taken serious. So uh, Ammon Bundy said today, so that they're, what they were saying, it would be respected more. Um, and that they would be taken more serious than had they not had guns. And he said that had they not had guns, they would have just been arrested and it would have been all over and they wouldn't have been able to speak and, and make their point. Well, now, while I get his point, isn't that kind of a confession for the exact charge for the conspiracy to impede? Because he's he's admitting that they had guns to intimidate people. <laughs> I, I'm not a lawyer, but it, it does seem that, that that's an odd kind of thing to, to admit uh, when you're on trial for conspiracy for that. And isn't that part of like what Craig Cobb had done in, in Leith though is, um, you know, and that was kind of part of the unraveling of it for him. It had involved weapons and that intimidation factor as well. That was what eventually unraveled Cobb is that he was uh, walking, doing quote patrols through town uh, with uh, another fellow who lived at his house with weapons and they were eventually charged with intimidation. Yeah. Right. And and, and kind of here in Oregon, um, a while back, there was a cult group called the Rajnijis, and, you know, they had come to take over a town's politics. That was their stated goal. They were, you know, getting people into politics, and politics certainly plays a role in what we're going to be talking about tonight. But before we t- jump too far ahead, what was it that specifically got you researching the patriot and sovereign elements here in Oregon? Because the the project that you had put out you'd been working on for a year so that that is certainly you were working on it before the Oregon standoff yeah we were a couple of months into it when the when the, the uh, Mosher refuge was taken over um in april of 2015 there was a armed camps were established at the sugar pine mine down in josephine county in merlin which is just outside of grants pass outside of merlin outside of grants pass um some miners had come into conflict with the BLM they claimed that they didn't have to uh, abide by BLM rules, um, that the 1872 Mining Act made them exempt from uh, later from the 1955 Mining Act. Basically, they claimed they could treat their unpatented mining claims as if they were private property. The BLM asked them to file some paperwork. They had apparently done some rather major um, major projects on their claim, uh, built, built things, built uh, permanent structures. And so instead of going to court or, or filing paperwork back, um, they called in people from the Patriot Movement and people swarmed the area and established, some of whom later went to the Mulhere Refuge, including Blaine Cooper, um, and uh, established three different armed camps to int- intimidate federal agents from doing their job. And uh, eventually this <clears throat> sort of went on for a while, and eventually um, the the, the, the the, the feds backed off of asking them to do the paperwork, but this caused other organizers in rural Oregon and a group called the Progressive, uh, the Rural Organizing Project, um, to call the think tank I work at, and we started talking because they were like, "Who are these people? We're being, are, you know, one of these communities are being flooded by right-wing paramilitaries," and we we're like, "Oh, these are Patriot Movement people. They 
come out of Ron Paul's movement in, in some ways and a part of this larger militia movement, the older militia movement. They're like the next generation of it. So we were talking for a while. Uh, I came out to Oregon and gave a talk to um, the ROPs, uh, the Rural Organizing Projects uh, members, to uh, one of the me uh, membership meetings uh, just to give us some background about this movement so people had a better understanding about why people were there and what their beliefs were. And then we cooked up an idea to, to write this report because we realized there was really extensive organizing in Oregon with, with thousands of activists and, and dozens of groups and that no one was paying attention to this. The um, Southern Poverty Law Center at this point had still claimed the movement had been in decline since 2011, that it, it had been kind of reborn in 2008, the Patriot Movement hit a peak in 11 and been in decline. And we we're like, this is not in decline. This is a, a movement in, in full swing. And uh, I used to live in Oregon. I lived during the late 90s at the time of the anti-globalization movement. And I had seen what a large militant grassroots movement looked like in that state. And I'm like, wow, it's sort of like a mirror image. You know, I knew that Oregon could quickly, um, that there were radical, both left-wing and right-wing grassroots movements that have, have flashed through Oregon over the years. Um, it's particularly um, susceptible or, or fertile for that. And so I was like, well, this movement's in full swing, so let's like document it and talk about it because uh, these activists are also starting to engage in a campaigns of harassment and intimidation of people who are, um, and that also drove drove the need for this. I mean, there couldn't just be like a normal civil dialogue or, or you know, critique and, and competition like we normally have uh, in the American political system. I think that's one of the better things about our political system was we don't usually resort to, you know, pulling guns on each other and, and the different political factions forming their own paramilitary units to fight it out. That happens in many other countries. And they, these groups were clearly moving into a strong, like, um, paramilitary, having, you know, uh, uh, developing paramilitaries that were networked throughout the state. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not anti-gun, but I will say this, that the, the more people that are strapping on guns and open carrying creates more fear in, in the general public and make it to the to in the sense that maybe not fear of the person that that's that's, you know, responsibly open carrying, but fear that if so many people are open carrying, that there must genuinely be a need to fear and open carry. Um, and, and, you know, negativity breeds negativity, fear breeds fear. But you said something, and I wasn't, I wasn't specifically going to talk about this, but you said something that's important. And you were talking about in Oregon, both left and right, different dynamics over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think me personally, I think that that's something that keeps getting missed in, in the situation that happened at Bundy Ranch, as well as at Mellier, um, and in the Patriot movement, because there's, you know, the Bush years, there were a lot of things that happened and transpired during the Bush years that also play a part into, you know, like in your report up in arms with, with regards to the militia movement kind of revamped and, you know, revived once uh, Barack Obama took office. And I think that a lot of people as a blanket, and I talk about blankets a lot, I think when they're looking at the Patriot movement and stuff like that, they're just thinking right wing. But I assure everybody out there, I know this for a fact because of the past that I keep sharing with you week after week, month after month of my own, that there are many people within this particular movement and situations that we're seeing in Nevada and Oregon that 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 were not right wing, that they were maybe far left wing or, or some other party in their head. Um, but on that, are you finding, I, I'm curious, um, and again, I haven't got to completely read the rest of your report. Are you finding that a lot of this is, and maybe people are afraid to say this. I mean, this is what I find. A lot of this is Tea Party bent. And you mentioned Ron Paul. And that's, again, where a lot of 
the Bush years play into Ron Paul and what happened with that, which kind of bred some of this. Spencer? I think, and a lot of us think that what happens after Paul's failed candidacy, Paul mobilized a big a right-wing base, and after um, he failed to become the candidate in 2008, that base that once it was mobilized took these different forms, including the Tea Party and the Oath Keepers. The Oath Keepers were founded by a former aide to Ron Paul, and Stuart Rhodes, the founder, now a disbarred lawyer, has said many times that uh, that the way that um, Paul was treated by the Republican Party helped inspire inspire him to work outside of the party. Um, so. So it's the same way political movements sometimes organize bases, and then when they, if they don't achieve their goals, it's a pretty common dynamic that they become more radical and work outside of the political system. Because, well, if we can't work inside, we'll work outside. And this becomes this dynamic where they're floating inside and outside of the system. I, I think of the Patriot Movement as the Tea Party with guns. That's often how I describe it. <laughs> yeah, I, I got you. I, I got you there. Okay, so so you're you're looking into Oregon and and you're looking at Patriot. Do you, let let's let's and this is this is not just me asking. This is a genuine question for the the mix, the very diverse audience that I have. The Patriot movement is not made up of all sovereign citizens, correct? That's correct. Can you uh, speak sovereign. a little bit on that? Because I think that that is a misnomer out there. I think people, again, put blankets and umbrellas on things and want to label groups of people all one thing. Absolutely. The Patriot Movement is a very diverse movement. It doesn't have a center. Uh, some people even uh, point to doctrines like leaderless resistance as driving it. And while I think that's an overstatement, like it's not totally um, completely decentralized. It's, there's like there's some organized groups. Like the Oath Keepers are, are do like a 501c3 and a, or a four, and a dues-paying organization. Their actual like structure and so CSPOA, uh, Richard Max Group of County Sheriffs and other and other uh, law enforcement. And then there are many other people who are just there. There's local groups. Some of the groups are there's networks and there's just like individuals. So the sovereign citizens are people who, or we use that term to, to for people who. So uh, many Patriot Movement people believe in sovereign ideology. Um, but not all sovereigns are part of the patriot movement. Um, sovereign citizens is the term that are generally used for people who believe in this, uh, almost like a, it's like a fake legal system that they've made up. Uh, it's almost like a parallel fantasy legal system um, that doesn't have any say in the real world, but people believe that there's um, various um, unconstitutional uh, um, things that happened, and so really the law should be uh, different than it is. But they don't. Uh, but they, so they, they somehow think that there is this almost parallel law going on that's the true law, and the actual law in our legal system is false. And by um, filing certain documents or using certain words or putting punctuation in their name or making up license license plates and, and driver's licenses, they can they can somehow opt themselves out of the law. Now, of course, all of this is nonsense, and in fact, it comes out of the white supremacist movement. It comes out of a 1970s, early 1970s paramilitary group called Posse Comitatus, who started to develop these ideas and then were elaborated over the years. So a sovereign is somebody, a sovereign, a sovereign citizen is someone who believes in, in this stuff. There are certain people who are like pure sovereigns. Sometimes I think about it like ecologists. Some people are just into ecology. You may have other politics and also be an ecologist. 
but you could be like an ecologist and not people used to think of ecologists as like on the left or something like you could be like a, a, a neoliberal right winger and have ecological ideas. So a sovereign citizen is like the real sovereigns are people who spend all their time thinking and, and practicing this stuff and doing all of the legal, you know, teaching themselves all these um, supposed, you know, legal techniques. A lot of these ideas infect, or not, I don't want to shouldn't use the language of infection, but uh, are bleed over and are adopted by other people. So people in the militias, people who are three percenters, people who belong to other patriot movement groups. And then there's some sovereigns who aren't part of those at all. Like many sovereigns don't want anything to do with the militia. They just do their legal work. And some of them are, are quite liberal. Uh, I would disagree with you that there are, there, are, there are leftists in the patriot movement, but there are people who are socially, certainly socially liberal uh, in their ideas about, uh, you know, queer, LGBTQ people or, or feminism or abortion or stuff. Some sovereigns are, you know, like hippie. I met people in, in Applegate Valley who are like, yeah, these, all these like hippie, like pot farmers are sovereign citizens, and, and they're not going out and forming militias because they want to um, – uh, they think the UN is coming, and they want to privatize a uh, public, federal public land. They they just think that somehow they can. Um, there's like almost like a magical incantation that they can uh, use to avoid the law as the law is actually set up now. So I hope that is somewhat um, explanatory. No, it is. Um, and you and I we spoke previously about um, co-opting and and different people and groups co-opting other things from different people and groups. And I was recently interviewed uh, by kind of another think tank of sorts, and they were speaking more on calling a lot of this like a leftist thing that had happened or things of this nature as leftist things. And, and it was really kind of an interesting dynamic because for me, when I say that there is a left uh, arm to this, I think, again, what is not understood clearly is that a lot of the people in these current movements kind of stemmed from, and, and not to go deep in the subject, but kind of stemmed from the 9-11 truth movement during the Bush years. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of co-opting that happened after the first initial couple years of the quote unquote truth movement. And then especially as we led into Barack Obama, when militias kind of started, you know, rearing up a little stronger and the Tea Party and Ron Paul. And, and what had happened is Ron Paul had promised a new 9-11 investigation. So a, a, a huge swath of 9-11 truthers immediately. And for that reason alone, began supporting Ron Paul and a lot of his ideals, his ideology ended up being co-opted by them because they needed and wanted to belong somewhere, not that their mindset had already been there. And that's where some of the left had come into this. And that's why I'm always stressing to the listeners as we've been speaking about um, you know, the situation here in Oregon for all these months is that there are many different kinds of groups that converged together for this particular incident as they did at Bundy Ranch. Um, so, you know, Spencer, with, with regards to the Oregon standoff, you had already mm -hmm. been, you know, pretty deep into your research on sovereigns and 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 the patriot movement and the situations here in Oregon and kind of who were the leaders kind of at this point, at least in this state. And probably by default, you were understanding militias elsewhere across the country. Would that be correct? I, I paid mostly attention to Oregon. I, I, I mean, I, I pretty much had to tunnel into that. I did learn a lot about the historic militia movement, um, and which was also a bunch of different groups from 
that came and different kinds of politics that came together. Uh, a little bit about the regional groups because the Oregon and the Idaho scenes were tied together and just uh, some more about the national groups, but I didn't study the, the local situations in other parts of the country. Do you, um, in your studies on militias particularly, um, there are, you know, there have become more now than in the past, these umbrella groups for militias, these networking groups like, you know, Ryan Payne's, um, you know, mm-hmm. groups and, and, and whatnot. So those seem to be relatively new in what the last decade ish, five years. Well, um, there's been a lot of changes. The in '08, I think the first of these new groups. So a bunch of new groups popped up when the movement revived in '08, and the first one was really the Three Percenters, and they were kind of fitted for the, the as the new all the new digital technologies have made it much easier to have um, decentralized politics, especially decentralized radical politics. And you've seen that on left wing movements and Islamist movements, like communist movements, have become influenced by this. Um, and so they, they fit that very well because it's three percent or anybody can declare themselves a three percenter. Uh, and so they can have groups, they can have national groups, they can have local groups, they can just be individuals. And then so some uh, some set organizations sprung up, the Oath Keepers, and then later CSPOA, I think in 10, in 2010 they founded. And then some traditional militias revived who are sort of locally based, kind of also rather static groups. And then the, the sovereigns also popped up, which also can be, you know, it's a lot of individuals reading stuff on the internet and that, that allowed them to do things. But yeah, there's, so all these groups are kind of, they're newer and then a lot, I think a lot, there was a huge revival after Bundy Ranch is what happened in 2014. The movement was declining and then it, it revived. And I believe that Payne's group is a post-Bundy Ranch group. Cows' post-Bundy Ranch group, the uh, Michelle Fiore's um, organization, um, Coalition of Western States. Um, and so are the so is the Oregon movement largely. Um, very few of the existing groups now, most of them are post-2014 groups. The Josephine County Oath Keepers, who recently disattached from the National Oath Keepers and are now the Citizen Patriots of Josephine County, originally, I think, formed in 2000. 12 or 13, and they were uh, stood out as one of the few groups that were established before the Bundy Ranch. What happened in 14 is that suddenly all these groups exploded in Oregon of different kinds, um, and so uh, and all different kinds of groups, militias, three percenter activity, uh, oath keepers groups. Um, so it's a, it is a pretty new, and a lot of them are using a network model. There's a powerful the, the powerful group. Established after the Sugar Pine Mine armed camps in, in the spring of 2015 was the Pacific Patriots Network, which was a, a regional group with the three percent of Idaho who are sort of cracking up now. Uh, then the what was then the Josephine County Oath Keepers, um, some uh, Central Oregon Constitutional Guard led by B.J. Soper, who was one of the organizers of the original January 2nd march that the uh, uh, the uh, Mosher occupation splintered out of. Um, and the Oregon Three Percent, which are uh, a bunch of a network, they have they have a state leadership, and then they're uh, a network of local Three Percenter groups. Um, so there's all kinds of different forms. There's multiple different forms, all sort of operating together and, and at the same time. It's a very um, polymorphous movement. Do you, are you finding in your research that these different militia groups, even within the same state, are like in, in total agreement with stances? Because I think that we saw with the Oregon situation at Malheur, we thought, you know, we saw patriot movements, not just locally, but also across the nation that were that hem They either did or they did not want to 
get involved. Yeah, so are, are you finding a lot, of, a lot of kind of discord in Oregon itself? There's uh, there's not any uniformity in the movement. I mean, the Maher thing was real weird because it happened in Oregon, but it was driven by people not from Oregon. I mean, they're pretty much. I think everyone but one of the original occupiers are from out of state, and they're mostly from Arizona and Nevada. Um, right. And they were almost coming to 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 take advantage of the fact that there was a big, you know, vibrant patriot movement in Oregon. But even that that it, it's the Burns was so weird because even that movement wasn't in Burns before the takeover. We don't think that Harney County had any patriot groups. It was a very conservative county, and people did share some of the ideas with the patriot movement. But there weren't any of these existing groups. Even, um, you know, so a lot of them were coming even from you know over over the Cascades and driving over. Um, they're not all in agreement with each other. Uh, the sovereign citizens are usually not in agreement with the constitutional sheriffs because the constitutional sheriffs think that they can make the law. They don't think that some individual can make their own version of the law because they've, they've decided something's constitutional or not. The sheriff needs to decide whether it's constitutional or not. Um, and the Oregon groups, the Pacific Patriot Networks groups, did not want the takeover to happen. They were really angry when Ammon and the others took over the um, – took over the Malheur Refuge. There's a video online you can watch of the meeting that happened directly after the original march when when Ellen Bundy, when the Bundy brothers and the others drove up to the refuge. And they're they're furious. They call them they call them bad apples. They name them by name. They're like, we'll get them out of the refuge until he's there and he's also promising to get them out of the refuge. Um right. So there never was agreement, and the, the, the Oregon groups have a very grassroots, uh, bottom-up strategy, and they want to cultivate good relationships with the community. Um, and they had gone to Burns. They had a meeting before the, the, the takeover the night before to assuage the community's fears that something awful was going to happen, and they're like, oh, no, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> so, But they don't have control over it. Um, and so the, the Bundys were much more radical. I mean, they represent a much more radical wing and probably more indicative of some of the conditions in, in Utah and Nevada and Arizona um, than, than – and the organizing in Oregon is different than some of these other places. It's, it's more community-based. It's deeper and bigger, but it's more community-based. And so they're less likely – they're less prone to such, such um, extreme you know, uh, confrontational activity. Well, you know, the Bundys uh, being a little more radical in, in the different things that they do and, and, and beliefs and stuff like that, I think when you have somebody like Alan Bundy who presents himself in a certain way, including in court in front of the jurors uh, during this trial, um, I mean, yesterday was quite tearful off and on throughout the day, and he comes across very sincere. He really does believe the bulk of the things that he's saying, and that's one of the things that I've been trying to explain about not everybody, but many people that are participating in these actions that really kind of have this cult-like behavior um, where it's just uh, this true believer syndrome. It's, 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 it's kind of crazy, but I do think that, and I don't even know what the answer is to it, because how do you deal with somebody who really believes something so wrong, um, especially if it's not specifically hurting somebody? It's not necessarily violent and hurting somebody. I mean, it's it's kind of touchy. And, and I think so. It's that charisma. And you find that in a lot of cult leaders is you find somebody mm -hmm. that that can present themselves in that way where even to non-supporters, there's still like some sort of a I don't want to say soft spot, but 
just like a weird understanding that they're, oh, they're a nice mellow guy. They're not going to necessarily do anything bad. Um, we're, you know, we're over the halfway mark on the show. And I, I want to make sure that we cover two things that are very, very important to me to discuss with you tonight. And one of those is kind of the the race issue and the reality of the race issue in uh, fringe groups as as a whole. We we talked about Leith. We talked about Craig Cobb a little bit. And that that is still part of this conversation. You um, have written on anti-Semitism. You have spoken about different race relations. The Bundy situation particularly with the Oregon, not the Nevada situation, has seemed, and here's that word again, co-opted, tried to co-op different things with, you know, kind of uh, in tandem with Black Lives Matter uh, and stuff like that. They talk about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. But to me, that's almost like me being a racist saying, oh, but I have a black friend. Um, and it feels very staged to me, not as genuine. And I think at the refuge, too, there were there were very few African-Americans that were involved in any way. And it seemed and I don't know that it was the Bundy so much as corporate media that did it. But it seemed like 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 with Lee Rice, and I, I can't remember the other person's name, but there was at least one other African-American male that was there, and they seemed to be kind of paraded out in the media like, oh, oh, you know, there's a black dude there. And so what are you kind of finding in race? And we'll get deeper into, and we'll go back to Craig Cobb, but with regards to Oregon standoff, Oregon patriot movement, how does race play into this? And then after we discuss race and before we sign off tonight, I want to get into the political end of it. So it's a complicated situation. Do we want to talk specifically about Ma here and race? Yes. Okay. Um, so it was a largely but not entirely white group that took it over. It was also largely but not entirely male. Um, I have a background in sociology, so I'm always like trying to figure out, like, who is it? Um, so you kind of mentioned this, you touched on this before, but the occupiers also, you know, a Bund, the Bundys are Mormons, and not just are they happen to be Mormons, but they they belong to a politicized version of Mormonism that fuses their religious ideas with these political ideas, which gives gave it this really messianic zeal, which is different than, say, the groups in, in Oregon, right? Um, none of them, right. I, I didn't find any of these, sometimes they're called Skousen. Skousen is the big guy that they follow a, a, a Mormon thinker who is close to the uh, John Birch Society and sometimes are called Skousenite Mormons. Um, well, Mormonism we hear about a lot about the Skousen uh, pocket constitution, but yes. It's, it's, a, it's the same one, yeah. And so uh, Skousen's good friend was probably the guy who was funding, uh, he is close to the Bundys. Um, I forget his name. He just died. He was in his 90s. Um, who was paying for all the many of the constitutions? Uh, so Mormons have their own history of oh. racism, and Oregon has Oregon has a real deep history of racism. It was founded as a state uh, as a, as a with racial exclusion laws, uh, and black folks couldn't couldn't be here. They were going to be uh, whipped if they stayed. They weren't allowed. It was allowed in as a state, and the compromise was that black people couldn't live here as a non-slave state. Uh, and so for many years it had racial exclusion laws and there was a big Klan state in the 20s and was a big Posse Comitatus state in the 70s. Um, at the refuge, a lot of the people who were, uh, there were some real weird, so the, the occupation is mostly white. They're ignoring the fact that the, they didn't know anything about the Burns Paiute tribe or the native tribe who that was their ancestral land and they had rights on the land and they had really, even more, much more so than the Oregon movement, which isn't, I haven't found really any evidence of anti-Native beliefs in it. These guys had anti-Native beliefs, uh, like said said and did really stupid things and infuriated the Burns Paiute tribe. 
um, who, the, who they didn't even recognize as having been there. I think one, one of the groups, the Harney County Committee of Safety that, that Ammon Bundy had helped form, did, did call the Native American savages in one document, which I'm sure did not injure themselves anymore. Um, and the video of a voice Finnecum rooting through the artifacts that were being held there infuriated the tribe. Um, so there's, there's that element to it. Um, the, the movement is always not, and the, the movement more generally has never, um, some of the beliefs were designed as white supremacist beliefs, and I don't think they're, they're understood, they're not subconsciously understood by the, um, by the movement this way, or they're not intended by the movement this way, but that's, they still have this potential effect. And here I'm particularly talking about this idea that county sheriffs can interpret the Constitution, which the Bundys believe. Um, constitutional county sheriffs, because they wanted Sheriff Ward, the Harney County Sheriff, to, to, to behave uh, you know, in accordance with their views. And when they didn't, they were like, oh, well, he's not a constitutional sheriff. And this idea was originally forged. So this idea is that county sheriffs can decide that which laws they want to enforce by deciding if they're in accordance with the Constitution. Now, this idea was originally forged during and right after, or right after the civil rights movement so that county sheriffs, who were a very conservative job, you know, across the board, could decide to not enforce civil rights laws. That was why the idea was created. Is that always designed? It was designed to get around environmental laws. It was designed for people basically to opt out of civil rights protections. You know, um, and this fits in with this whole uh, line you'll hear from Patriot Movement people about we're not a democracy, we're a republic, and they want to go back to the founding ideals. Well, then the founding ideals about 10% of the population could vote. The founding ideals included slavery. The founding ideals, you know, thought that unless you were a white man who owned property, you couldn't vote. It, it totally disenfranchised women. Um, disenfranchised people of color, disenfranchised people who weren't of the upper class. So um, they're taking these, even though now the ideas are like, oh, well, the county sheriff's going to decide whether um, the terrorism laws should be applied to the Hammond family or whether about land use issues, if, if the BLM can come and enforce regulations on land use. Nonetheless, if, the, if they're saying a county sheriff still has this power, the county sheriff, they're still advocating an idea that that's, it's very ideas to, um, to disenfranchise, to give the ability to disenfranchise certain people from their political rights on one hand. On the other hand, it's an anti-democratic idea. You know, people have struggled hard to um, have dialogues with each other and make changes through the political system, and a lot of these changes have been enacted on the federal level. So this is a way to, like, instead of, for, instead of them winning their ideas, um, you know, by also engaging in the political process, just sort of overturning it in one fell swoop, right? Um, so, so that, that's part of it. Um, you know, I think many of these guys, uh, uh, and if you can get into the specific beliefs, they, they wanted to avoid these questions at Mall here. And um, I guess the last thing is, is like, there's almost an implicit white identity politics in what they're doing. I mean, almost an all white group, they go to Mall County, it's like 92% white. And then they're advocating and you'll even watch like who they're advocating for, and they're advocating for certain rural professions, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, that are almost all white, and that are almost all white as well. But at some point you're like, for example, they're advocating for farmers and ranchers and loggers, and these are almost all white professions, but they're never advocating like for the farm workers who are uh, much less white, and in Oregon, you know, have, you know, a lot of Latino people, um, both documented and undocumented, work in these professions, citizens and otherwise. Um, they're advocating for the owners Spencer, who are almost Spencer, but they would, they would probably, 
they would probably add, sorry not to interrupt they I, I have to do it at least once uh, they, they would probably sure. advocate uh for the farmers being able to hire undocumented workers or something like that you know oh i mean that that's that's yeah, where the they're, not, just... they're not they're not advocating for the rights of the, the farm workers they're only advocating for the farm owners and the farm right owners that's, what, are that's like my point percent yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's what I'm saying. They're not advocating for the other people on the farm. They're not advocating for everybody in, in the agricultural industry, just for the owners of farms. And farm owners in the U.S. are like 96% white. So right. even even while nothing they're doing is explicitly racist, everything they're doing is really only about um, standing up for a percent white, uh, the, the almost entirely white percentage of the population. Now, they may not have, you know, they may be totally fair to everybody, and I do believe, it's not like I think that they were like, or any, well, maybe some of them were, but most of them were not, uh, Evan Bundy or, or, you know, others were not consciously racist towards people, but all of the things that they're advocating for, they're really interested in, 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 in finding the majority, you know, in, in the interests of certain people who are almost entirely white and working against the interests of people who aren't as an aggregate group, not that individuals might fall all over that spectrum. Okay, and then just just to broaden this a little bit, the patriot movement, the so-called patriot movement, those the, those people that consider themselves a quote-unquote patriot and identify with some of this sort of stuff, um, you know, in the in the support aspect of it, is is way way beyond um, you know the Bundys and what happened here in Oregon and what happened in Nevada, and there are there are some people that that consider themselves to be patriots that are upset with these people um, and feel that they've done things wrong and feel that they have set their movement back or you know have done something something you know harmful or whatever and there there are some people that uh have shown racism that were part even in leadership and second tier uh aspects of you know uh, you know the oregon and nevada thing like Corey lequeux as uh susan lindstedt as point is pointing out in the listener chat by the way um if you got booted from the listener chat it was a blog talk radio glitch just hit refresh and it is still there live by the way I got some feedback, so I just want to let the listener know. Spencer, I want to talk more deeper into race. And again, we're kind of dwindling down now. So if and then I don't want to, you know, miss the chance of talking the political end too. R- real quickly, you know, race, because the Patriot movement is so much more bigger and beyond than just what we've seen here in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Race also is bigger and beyond and even more prolific or in your face in different aspects of this this weird new thing that that is being labeled as patriotism now can you talk about that um i mean because there's a lot of racism you know the white from the white supremacists down and there are people that there are people that uh for instance the 9-11 truth movement was having some people were having a cow when they heard that you were going to be on the show and because <laughs> of something to do you know with uh you know with so-and-so or whatever and you can speak on that briefly i don't want to get into 9-11 right now but but they neglect uh, about christopher for Bullen and they and they neglect completely the fact what your point was about um, being a Holocaust denier and um, and anti-Semitism and stuff like that and so it's everywhere and people seem to neglect it if that person somehow speaks to them on a different level which is part of the popularity of people like David Icke or Alex Jones or whatever which in my opinion are all kind of quasi cult leaders so can you talk deeper on the racism on this um I think that I agree that people will dismiss things that they don't like if they if they're in tune with the other stuff. Um, there used to be a lot more open racism in the Patriot movement. In that it was founded basically the Posse Comitatus group was founded as a racist and anti-Semitic movement, 
And during the militia movement, maybe about a quarter of these people were still pretty openly racist and anti-Semitic. There were a lot of Christian identity leaders uh, of the militias. Um, there are many fewer now open people, but there's still some and still some prominent people. Um, in my report, I document some of them. For example, uh, one of the zone leaders in the Oregon 3%, uh, Tom McCurgan, uh, is part of like a white supremacist Facebook group, as well as one of the fake judges who was at at Ma here, uh, Bruce Duchette. You know, we live in a we live in a country in which, as a group, white people, um, you know, are are the dominant group, have the vast majority of um, of of power, of money. Uh, we live in a country that was it was founded this way by committing genocide against the people who originally lived here and importing a you know population from Europe, um, and uh, you know, even after the civil rights movement, um, there's been various formal and informal ways in which white people as a group, not every individual, have been able to keep all of that power and have re refused really to, to reckon with um, the, the history of the United States about how the country was founded and then um, how it was also founded on slavery and how the, the continuing effects of the legacy of slavery and racism on the black population in particular um, have happened in this country, and um, you know, we're Black Lives. To me, Black Lives Matter is a movement that's trying to like force a recognition of, of that this is an unresolved issue, that there hasn't been a rec recognition. This is truly a problem that we like live in a country that's truly defined um, by racism. Um, even if even if every individual white person is not consciously racist and doesn't intend to to treat people as an individual badly. The whole structure is set up this way. Um, and movements like the Patriot Movement are going to do everything except look at this. Uh, and uh, sometimes they'll often quite uh, deny it. Um, if, even, if, even, if, even if we exclude the openly racist people, that there will be a, like a more like a lesser level of racism. The Oath Keepers run articles and say things like there's no such thing as a white privilege, which is this idea that white people have uh, economic, social, and psychological advantages over other people in the society. Um, and to me, it's self-evident that like white people as a whole, as a white person in this society, I have all kinds of advantages. I live in New York City. I can walk down the street and I see cops and their eyes just go right past me. They're like, you're not, you're not the droid we're looking for. Right. And, uh, you know, and they do, they'll ever, ever you talk to any like younger black or Latino man in New York and they'll be like, yeah, I've been stopped by the cops 10, 20, 30 times. I mean, they can be a doctor at the hospital. You know, they can be a student at Columbia University and they'll all have the same stories. And the Patriot Movement just doesn't want to deal with this. Uh, they don't want to look at it. And in fact, they want to um, concentrate on, um, and I mean, it's tough because a rural, there, there is a real, you know, rural people in America, are their condition, the, the conditions are, are getting worse for a lot of them. Um, and it's not right to advocate for them, but the way that the Patriot Movement advocates for them tends, to me, feels very strongly like it's replicating all these existing inequities in our society. Uh, the Patriot Movement isn't doing anything to address them. If anything, it's doing... At the best, it does nothing to address them, and at worst, it, it, it's trying to make these these divisions worse. That's what I would say. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like they're they're again kind of co-opting things for sound bites, for photo ops, and and stuff like that. That there's not sincerity behind it. So let's talk patriots and politics, Spencer. Um, and let's talk patriots and politics with regards to your this report that you did up in arms. I mean, it's a great report. I'm gonna give the 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 links where it can be found uh, verbally as well as again post them in a moment, but let's, let's kind of get into this because it really kind of results into having a presidential candidate like Donald Trump. So speaking of Oregon specifically, let's talk Patriot politics. You are the, uh, my new expert on that. 
<laughs> uh, what's uh, in electoral politics? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have people running for office, people that have run for office that are all part of this, you know, this patriot ideology, as far as like what we've seen here at the standoff. And and let me just say this, uh, again, one of those things that happened during the Bush years that a lot of people really aren't aware of, and, I, and I've said this before, is part of these groups, when I was a part of them, before they've, you know, evolved and morphed into what they are, they there was a, there was a concerted effort that that we were all going to run for different offices or run for different law enforcement positions and and whatnot and kind of work from the bottom up and kind of infiltrate in now I, I ended up not participating in that and i know many people that didn't but we're kind of seeing the fruition of some of that now so can you kind of explain oregon's patriot politics here and what's kind of happened and what's going on and you know who who who's who Kind of a complicated situation. A lot of people in the Patriot movement ran for office in the um, primary in in, in uh, May, right after the refuge, right when there was a big. Um, it gave a real boost to the whole movement, and they didn't do very well. Most of these people, some of them had run before. But none of them were real like. Uh, very few of them had like held office, and most of the candidates got like under twenty percent in the primary. Almost almost none of them won. Um, and so very few of them are up for election in November. Dennis Linthicum is one of the uh, – who had been a county commissioner, I think is now running – as a, he's a Republican candidate, I think, for Oregon State uh, – Oregon Senate. Um, and there's another fellow who's running for the uh, 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 U.S. Senate for against Ron Wyden called Mark Callahan, who's become more and more closer to the Patriot Movement. So their own candidates – they don't look like they're really, the people are really members of the movement, don't really uh, look like they're going to advance very far up. They also got beat out. They also mostly ran for county level positions. The movement really is interested in taking over at the county level, and, and none of them, most most or all of them did, did very poorly. Um, they have some people in the state, uh, in the state uh, uh, um, Congress, uh, who are state reps or state senators who are sympathetic to the movement. They're not like a total adherence, but they're sympathetic to some of their things. This includes a, a state senator named Thatcher and then state representatives Nearman and Post, as well as Carl Wilson. Um, so they have sympathizers, especially about land transfer issues. Um, but what the, what the movement in Oregon has done is something very weird. They ran a lot of their activists for PCPs, the uh, precinct committee people, which is the lowest level. It's actually it's not a it's an elected position, but you're not a member of the government. You're a member of one of the parties, and so they became all these Republican Party PCPs, which and then generally in Oregon and many part places they don't have enough enough people to fill the available slots. Uh, it's often I think um, five or ten. Uh, both there's a slot for men and women. Uh, in each in each area that they're supposed to canvass and be the party representative, and usually all, only a few of these are filled. And so, 50 or 100 or more Patriot Movement activists have become precinct committee people in the Republican Party, and they were able to go to the uh, state uh, Republican Party convention in June and had four or five of their people uh, elected to party positions, um, including sending delegates to the national convention. And so uh, Joseph Rice, who was one of the uh, people who was part of the buffer zone in Mahir, who was the head of the um, Josephine County Oath Keepers, went as a, and ended up being a Trump delegate at the Republican National Convention in July and held up a big, big sign uh, on the convention floor saying, free the Bundys. So they now are in the state Republican Party, the Oregon State Republican Party, the party apparatus itself, not 
not so much that they have um, gotten a bunch of elected officials on their side. So it's very interesting to see what they're going to do with this, um, and and how they uh, what they what how they're going to try to be able to leverage this power and what they think they're able to do with it. Um, but a lot of us, I mean, I think we're going to wait and see what happens with Trump. Trump is going to be a really deciding moment for um, the movement. I think succeeds the movement may sort of go down uh, because people will become involved they'll, they'll see that you know they have their guy in power and they're not uh, the Patriot movement all isn't terribly love Trump but he's enough of their guy a lot of people are more into Cruz um, I think if Trump loses we're gonna this is going to be a very interesting moment Trump has basically called for people to overthrow Hillary Clinton if she's elected or possibly assassinate her and, you know, right. said, oh, well, the Second Amendment people are the ones who might do this. So the obvious candidates for the, quote, Second Amendment people are the Patriot Movement. And uh, the Patriot Movement has traditionally prospered when a Democrat's in power, and they hate Hillary Clinton. They demonize her, as many people do. And so it will be very interesting to see what happens if Trump loses, if that will probably be when we really have to watch what's going on in the Patriot Movement. And that might be the time where uh, certain parts of the movement break off and start to engage in a, a more proactive armed struggle situation. That's not a probability, but that's, I think, a definite possibility that might happen. Real quick, twofold question. Um, with the first trial starting to near towards uh, the end of, um, you know, the defense uh, running their case and then resting their case, and then we'll have jury deliberation and whatnot, as well as with this upcoming election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, do you think that there is any potential for violence, uh, depending on the outcome of the trial, depending on the outcome of the election, with regards to sovereign citizens and the patriot movement? Well, I don't think so about the trial, but I'm not watching. I've been watching the Oregon movement more, and they were always a little bit ambiguous about Maul here, so I don't think they're so emotionally invested in it. People are more angry that, that Finicum was killed. Uh, I, I do think that if Trump loses and Clinton wins, there is a potential for violence. I think there's an, a potential for, for people trying to large, launch some sort of underground armed, armed revolutionary struggle. Uh, I don't know how many people might be involved in that. Sovereigns are always – sovereigns and independent people often, like unattached three percenters, are often engaging in violence. There's been, I think, a dozen police killed in shootouts with sovereigns. and. Three percenters are constantly being arrested with, you know, weapons and bombs and, and threatening to shoot people up. And so that, that um, you know, remain is almost like a drumbeat more than anything else. And that's certainly not going to change. Um, and the tensions around the election may increase that. Well, yeah, I for sure. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I mean, I don't think that they have enough backing behind them to have a Rodney King moment um, as far as the trial goes. But you never know, yeah. because some of these people have proven and shown themselves to be, you know, a little over the top and things. Spencer Sunshine, thank you so, so very much for being on the show tonight. I appreciate you greatly. Thank you for having me on the show. I was very happy to finally uh, be able to do this with you. Me too. It was awesome. We're going to do this again. Um, if anybody missed the report, you can go to politicalresearch.org and you can find it there. Or you can go to spencersunshine.com and it's called Up in Arms, the uh, a guide to Oregon's patriot movement. I, I highly suggest it. Our words of power, my words, your words, all the world's words, and all the many languages even. What impact are your words making? It's up to each of us to take responsibility for the propaganda we participate in. Whether we create it or curate it, click, like, share, kind of like the shampoo bottle, wash, rinse, lather, repeat, all of that over and over and over. 
Are we really better for it? Are we doing it right? Are we doing it in the right order? Just like I said, the shampoo thing in the wrong order. You never know unless you're reading and researching. Not just confirming your bias. If you missed part of tonight's show or any of the others, you can find the archives on Blog Talk Radio, Podbean, or on the website at challengingtherhetoric.news. You know, you can also go back to the uh, Facebook there at facebook.com forward slash challengingtherhetoric with Sherry Roberts. If you like what I'm doing, please share the shows or the articles or both. And if you really, 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 really like what I do, you know, you can hit up the PayPal. All gratuities are very, very, very much appreciated. I'm going to be back live next Wednesday, October 12th, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. 